Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Trigger warning. This podcast is about the book Lolita and discusses themes of pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. December 6th, 1953. Finished Lolita which was begun exactly five years ago. Vladimir Nabokov wrote to a friend that he had finished Lolita, a novel he'd been working on for five years, and one he was certain would be even more challenging to publish than it was to write. The book detailed the memoir of European pedophile Humbert Humbert, who Nabokov referred to in later interviews as, quote, a vain and cruel wretch who manages to appear touching, and Dolores Lolita Hayes, a 12-year-old American girl he becomes obsessed with, abducts, and rapes hundreds of times over the course of several years. The novel takes the perspective of Humbert, who is trying to convince you, the reader and his jury, that this is a love story. Nabokov would later say that the Humbert character was inspired by an ape who learned to draw. Nabokov says this, The initial shiver of inspiration was somehow prompted by a newspaper story about an ape in the Jardin des Plantes who, after months of coaxing by a scientist, produced the first drawing ever charcoaled by an animal. This sketch showed the bars of the poor creature's cage. Nabokov constructed Humbert's drawing of his own cage on index cards in the summers between teaching at Cornell University. He'd write in the backseat of the car after long days of his wife Vera driving them from the east to west coast of the United States, stopping in motels that Nabokov used as inspiration on where Humbert brings Lolita after kidnapping her, trailing the, quote, sinuous trail of slime, unquote, as Nabokov describes it. Legend has it that Vera once caught him trying to destroy the manuscript and stopped him right in time. Not to mention, this wasn't even the first time he'd attempted to write about this theme or destroyed that attempt. Nabokov had written a novella called The Enchanter while living in the Russian emigre community in Berlin in 1939. Very similar storyline, but Nabokov destroys all copies of the story, he thinks, before it's ever published. But now it's the end of 1953, and Nabokov's work is complete. He wants to publish it under a pseudonym at first, worried that the themes of the book would lose him his teaching job at Cornell, whose income he was still very dependent on at this time. But he's advised that this would make it even less likely that Lolita would be published at all, and in fact could be used to make him look guilty in a court of law if things went that far, because this is still towards the end of the McCarthy era in the U.S., Nabokov wasn't the untouchable writer he's regarded as today at this time. In fact, Lolita's success would turn him into that. 
And it's not like there's no established precedent for books landing authors and publishers in court, no matter how well regarded the work is. James Joyce's Ulysses ran into censorship issues back in the 20s during its pre-publication serialization in the U.S., leading to the United States versus One Book Called Ulysses case of 1933. Very dramatic case name. The book won out, but not before a lot of money was spent on both sides. And similar situations had befallen erotic novel Forever Amber by Kathleen Windsor in 1944, as well as to Nabokov's friend, American writer Edmund Wilson's Memoirs of Hecate County in the 50s. All of these books end up prevailing in the courts, but the process was arduous and expensive on publishers, and many didn't want to take the financial and reputational risk, even on a writer they really liked. So Lolita is sent to American publishers, to Viking, to Simon & Schuster, to New Directions, Doubleday, and it's a resounding no across the board. Simon & Schuster says it's sheer pornography. Nabokov writes to his longtime editor Catherine White at The New Yorker, who also has rejected Lolita at this point, saying the following. I had to write that book for artistic reasons, and I don't really care much what happens to it next. But it turns out he does care, because then it's on to the British publishers. But still no luck. In early 1955, still searching, he writes this to Edmund Wilson. I suppose it will be published by some shady firm with a Viennese dream name, e.g. Silo. And in April 1955, it reaches Olympia Press in Paris, run by Mario Gerodius. Olympia was famous for two things, publishing controversial scraps by famous writers like Miller, Beckett, and Burroughs that they couldn't release elsewhere, and erotica. Porn. Book porn. 75% of it was book porn, and Gerodius accepted the title of Mr. Book Porn with, quote, joy and pride, unquote. And hey, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of book porn. That's not how I would classify Lolita the book at all. But the genre of erotica itself, I mean, who cares? I'll tell you who cares, it's Vladimir Nabokov. Reflecting on this time later, he says this. I had not been in Europe since 1940, was not interested in pornographic books, and thus knew nothing about the obscene novelettes which Mr. Gerodius was hiring hacks to confect with assistance. I have pondered the painful question whether I would have agreed so cheerfully to his publishing Lolita had I been aware in May 1955 of what formed the supple backbone of his production. Alas, I probably would, though less cheerfully. And he's right. Gerodius, in spite of giving Lolita the first of its many breaks that would turn it into a classic, did not get it, and was quoted as saying it, quote, might bring about a change in social attitudes towards the kind of love described, unquote, which was, as you know, definitely not the point of the book, to put it generously. Nabokov's American academic friends advise him not to publish, thinking it will damage his reputation. There's a little bit of drama with copyright between the author and Olympia, and in September 1955, Lolita's first edition is published. And everyone loves it. No notes. The end. Just kidding. This is Lolita Podcast.
Welcome back. I'm Jamie Loftus. Nice to parasocially interact with you again here on Lolita Podcast. Last week in our first episode, we talked about some of the current prevalent schools of thought on Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita and took an in-depth look at the events of the book itself, because there's no use in knowing what happens in the adaptations if you don't know what you're comparing it against. And it goes without saying that we have a lot to talk about But today, we're going to take it back in time a little bit to talk about Nabokov, to talk to several of the scholars in the Nabokov community, to talk about some of the finer points of the book, and to trace the journey of the book's first publication in 1955 through the long battle of Lolita as a banned book, all the way up to the first film adaptation attempt in the early 1960s. Brian Boyd, who's written the definitive two-volume Nabokov biography, that I've been using. And we're also going to be talking to Brian in this episode as well. So my friends, the time has come to ask, who is Vladimir Nabokov? He is born on April 22nd, 1899 in St. Petersburg to a very wealthy Russian noble family. But his family does require some explaining, so we're going to take it back a little bit before that. Nabokov's grandfather, Dmitry Nabokov, is high up in the pre-revolutionary government. He's the Minister of Justice under the liberal-ish czars Alexanders II and III. He is a bureaucratic liberal, but even this was enough to get him labeled as a radical every once in a while. Think of how people called Joe Biden a radical when he was running, and it's like, honey, I wish. Uh, Sorry for getting political. Moving on. Dimitri is considered radical for saying wild things like, there should be fair trials for all. His writer grandson would actually continue this line of thought later in his life, saying that he pitied both JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald after watching media coverage of the president's assassination in the U.S. in the 1960s. Dmitry Nabokov is prominent in pre-revolutionary Russia, and the Nabokovs have a number of brushes with literary fame before the famous novelist in the family is born. Dmitry encounters writer and founder of socialist realism, Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who under Alexander was intimidated by being mock executed, but then told, just kidding, you're not being executed, but get out. And then he was exiled. And there's a bunch of this in pre-revolutionary Russia. Anyways, Dimitri has an affair with an older woman and then marries her daughter to keep things above board, and the woman he marries is Vladimir Nabokov's grandmother. But she's also Vladimir Nabokov's mother, because Vladimir Nabokov and his father have the exact same name, which becomes messy for the author and for me right now. So to differentiate, I'm going to call the father of Lolita author Vladimir Nabokov Daddy Vlad to make things easier. Thank you. That is a very elegant solution. I was in Mensa. So, Daddy Vlad, pretty cool guy, born in 1870. His politics are pretty far to the left of his father, Dmitri. He's arrested as a student protester. He was outspoken against anti-Semitism and went on to be a successful defender of Russian Jews during his legal career. He also defended queer people, ex-convicts, and political insurgents from legal oppression. Overall, I would have dated him but he was still from a bougie family and he marries accordingly. Daddy Vlad marries Elena Rukovishnikova, daughter of landowners so rich, her dad opened a school for only his kids. Elena is very intelligent and is educated in the natural sciences. They are married and have five kids, the oldest of whom is Vladimir Nabokov, or Volodya, as he's known as a kid. 
Daddy Vlad starts working as an editor at Provo, a left-leaning journal, and Volodya is pretty uninterested in politics as a young person. He has another brush with literary fame. A young Volodya and Daddy Vlad meet writer Leo Tolstoy, hello, in passing, when Volodya is only 10. And here, I'll be honest, Vladimir Nabokov sounds like an absolute bratty rich kid while he's growing up. And Nabokov scholars will defend this. But yeah, he's very bright, but he seemed like kind of a jerk. He had like valet is driving him to school. It's not for me. Very spoiled by his parents, Volodya had nannies and private tutors and literally teethed on his mother's jewels growing up. For reference, he's about the same age as the Romanov children's Anastasia, all those. So he wasn't royalty, but that same time and that same vibe, like teething on jewels. A cocky rich kid, Nabokov speaks Russian, English, and French from a young age and later says this of himself in his autobiography, Speak Memory. I think I was born like that, a precocious genius, a wunderkind. And humble, too. Volodya is also diagnosed with synesthesia as a kid, a condition where letters and numbers are associated with colors, and that's something that his eventual wife, Vera, will share. Daddy Vlad is elected into the first Duma Council in 1906, but then is sent to prison and solitary confinement in 1908 for his association with the Provo Journal. He comes back fine, but Volodya remembers this time very clearly. Nabokov has four younger siblings, one of whom is a childhood friend to Ayn Rand, which I don't want to talk about at all, and one of which is his brother Sergei, which I do, as Volodya does something both pretty unforgivable and very of his time, and outs his brother as a gay man to their parents, which results in Sergei's being sent away to a boarding school. The relationship doesn't completely heal for some time, and Sergei, after many happy years with his lover, dies in a concentration camp in 1945 after speaking out against Hitler. Back in 1916, Volodya falls in love with a girl named Valentina, who later dumps him. He self-publishes a poetry collection as a teen, Emo King, then inherits two million pounds in 1917 money from his uncle, who Brian Boyd mentions in his biography of Nabokov, molested him as a child. One of his experiences seems to be replicated in pretty close detail later in Lolita, in a scene where Humbert Humbert bounces Dolores on his lap in order to pleasure himself. In 1917, the February Revolution happens in Russia, and Daddy Vlad is made secretary to the provisional government, but is forced to flee with the family when the Bolshevik Revolution starts. He then serves as the Minister of Justice in 1918 in the Crimean Regional Government, and the Nabokov family finally settles in Berlin, Germany permanently in 1919. And at this point, they are entirely stripped of their court titles and of all of their money. And in fact, a necklace of pearls that Nabokov teethed on as a baby are sold so they can make rent in Germany. This is a huge shift in Nabokov's life. He goes on to attend Cambridge University in England with his brother Sergei, while Daddy Vlad begins editing Russian emigre newspaper Rule back in Berlin. Nabokov begins publishing poetry in his dad's paper, so no nepotism there. And he uses a pen name, Vladimir Sirin, which is a pseudonym meant to distance him and prevent confusion with his dad in a way that kind of evokes Nick Cage's relationship to the Coppolas for me. Like he just kind of got rid of the name in hopes that no one would notice. Like, I get it. You don't want to seem like nepotism, but like you are. And we know that. Anyways, like Nick Cage, this ends up being kind of a wash because Sirin is a legitimately talented writer and becomes popular locally. Then in 1922, Daddy Vlad is suddenly murdered. 
completely altering the direction of the family's life. He attends a former colleague's speaking engagement in the hope of repairing their lapsed friendship. A gunman shoots at the speaker. Daddy Vlad tries to interfere, and he's hit and killed. Nabokov's journals from this night are devastating. What has happened? Tell me, what's happened? She asks, seizing him by the sleeves. He spreads out his hands. Something terrible. He sobs, cannot finish. So it's all over? He says nothing. Hessen, too, says nothing. Their teeth chatter. Their eyes dart a watt. And Mother understood. I thought she would faint. So that's it? She repeated quietly. She seemed to reason it out with herself. How can it be? And then, Volodya, do you understand? In 1923, Nabokov meets his future wife, Vera, a Russian Jew from the upper class who I absolutely love, and there's a very beautiful biography written about her by Stacy Schiff that I highly recommend. They're married in 1925 in Berlin, and Nabokov, as Siren, continues to write, again occasionally benefiting from nepotism due to the tragically killed Daddy Vlad. Now firmly a member of the middle class, he begins working to support the family. And speaking to his early work, I think this is really interesting and encouraging for those of us that are also writers in our 20s. A lot of his early stories are just okay. As he continues to thrive in the emigre writing communities, he writes stories like The Potato Elf. He was not a great writer immediately, which I find to be cool and realistic and comforting and never is really discussed about the great writer canon. Vladimir and Vera were very active in the Russian emigre community. They tutored and did secretary work respectively to make ends meet while they were living there. They end up living in Berlin for 20 years, and Vladimir publishes early novels, including ones that I really like, like The Defense and The Gift, but he never really likes Germany and only has a basic grasp on the language. In 1936, when their son Dmitri is only two years old, Vera loses her job because of the increasing anti-Semitism in Berlin. And that same year, and I still cannot wrap my head around this, but that same year, the man who had murdered Daddy Vlad in 1922 is promoted to be second in command of the Russian emigre group in Berlin. And so the Nabokovs get the fuck out of there. They then spend some time in Paris, where Nabokov has a brief affair. Vera finds out it ends, although there's enough drama in there alone for a decent indie movie. He writes his first English-language novel, and mere weeks before the Germans bomb Paris, Vladimir, Vera, and Dmitri manage to get to the U.S. To get there, they have half of their ticket paid for by a Jewish rescue organization that was arranged due to all of the great work that Daddy Vlad had done back in the day, and they crowdfund the rest from their rich friends. And in 1940, they get to New York. And I mean, it's all a pretty amazing story. They get to the U.S., and Nabokov loves it there, vowing to become, for all intents and purposes, a fully American writer. Although he remains extremely nostalgic for Russia, both in memory and in language for the rest of his career, he volunteers at the American Museum of Natural History and expands his studies on lepidoptery. And this is a good point to mention that Nabokov was also a full-on butterfly scientist. That's what lepidoptery is, stemming from a boyhood interest and ultimately taking up quite a bit of his time in the 1940s. While teaching classes in Russian and literature at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, he also worked as the curator of lepidoptery at Harvard University and ultimately contributed work to that field that remains relevant today. Wild stuff. In 1946, he first has the idea for Lolita, although at this time he calls the book The Kingdom by the Sea, referencing Poe, and Lolita is called Juanita Dark. Sure. 
He gains a reputation as an American writer, publishing story after story with The New Yorker. He starts teaching at Cornell in upstate New York in 1948, and Lolita comes out in 1955. And this changes his life forever. So once Lolita comes out and all of this publication stuff is settled, Nabokov was left with the impressions of the public. And oh, did the public respond. Lolita blazes, however, with a perversity of a most original kind. A fine book, a distinguished book. All right then, a great book. Without a doubt, it is the filthiest book I've ever read. Sheer, unrestrained pornography. The first is that it is dull, dull, dull in a pretentious, florid, and archly fatuous fashion. The second is that it is repulsive. What makes the book flame, I think, is first of all a love affair with the real America. 300 pages of sex in the head! The first time I read Lolita, I thought it was one of the funniest books I'd ever come on. The second time I read it, uncut, I thought it was one of the saddest. Humbert is all of us. Lolita is undeniably news. Unfortunately, bad news. Highbrow pornography. Thank you so much to my friends for some truly career-defining performances there. Good stuff. So Lolita is published in Paris. An early win is when well-regarded English critic Graham Greene declares Lolita as one of his favorite books of 1955, which gets people curious. And then it's a years-long battle for Lolita to see the light of day in the United States and in England. There's hushed talks of potential court cases, constantly changing obscenity laws, faulty translations into foreign languages, people literally smuggling Olympia Press copies in their suitcases overseas, then having Lolita seized in customs. It was a big dramatic thing. Eventually, once the hype grew big enough in the U.S., the same publishers that were once turning the book off away were now banging down his door trying to get the publishing rights to the book. So all in all, Lolita was banned as obscene in France from 1956 to 1959, even though that was the country where it was first published. Good luck with that math. It was banned in England from 1955 to 59, Argentina in 1959, and in New Zealand in 1960. And it wasn't even unbanned in South Africa until 1982, for God's sake. But in 1959, what Nabokov has been waiting for happens. Not only is his book finally published in the U.S. four years later by Walter Minton at Putnam's, it's a massive hit, staying on the bestseller lists for months and selling 100,000 copies in its first three weeks. Quick fun sidebar, an American showgirl named Rosemary Ridgewell was the one to get Lolita published. She was an avid reader and aspiring opera singer who was actually having an affair with the Putnam publisher Walter Minton. And she ends up getting credit for this. After some negotiating, she makes $22,000 in 1960s money for her trouble. That's $190,000 today. Go, Rosemary. But in the U.S., Lolita never gets a formal blanket ban. And in 1959, not only is his book finally published in the U.S. four years later, it's a massive hit, and it stays on the bestseller list for months. 
Once Lolita is published in the States for your scorecard, about one out of every three reviews is bad, the other two were good. And while it is true that certain American public libraries banned Lolita from their shelves, nothing lasted, and the public learning of these bans usually just served to increase the book's sales again. And that's the story of most banned books. And what I think is most noteworthy here is that America ended up becoming perhaps more receptive to Lolita than almost any other country, which Nabokov was thrilled about. But what he couldn't have known is that America was going to take this story wildly out of context for decades to come. I'm talking a parent sending their daughter in a Lolita costume to Nabokov's door weird. And to get a little more into Nabokov's head at this point in his career, I was lucky enough to speak to Dana Dragonoyu, an associate professor of English at Carleton University in Ottawa and a noted Nabokovian. And that's what scholars who specialize in Nabokov are called. They're like Twihards or the BTS army, but they're adults and probably ones who would resent that comparison. They are Nabokov superfans with credentials. She's written Vladimir Nabokov and the Poetics of Liberalism, Lolita, Law, Ethics, and Politics, and more. And she's genuinely the coolest. So here's a little bit of our discussion. So he's writing Lolita just in the little interlude between other big projects. And then as he's writing it, he knows that he's got a ticking time bomb on his hands. He knows that um, he's putting all of this time into this novel that might actually never be published. Edmund Wilson actually hates it. He thinks it's not a great book. Um, Catherine White uh, <laughs> doesn't want to touch know. it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> does, does, yeah. Doesn't want to touch it. Yeah. So um, he sends it to a few publishers, and they all say that they can't run the risk mm-hmm. of landing in jail themselves or having their, um, their publication houses prosecuted. And so then it comes to the attention of other literati, and they pick up the book, and some love it. Some think that it's a, a, a resplendent book, and others think that it's pornographic. So um, somebody by the name of Gordon Brown, I think, he writes in a British sensationalist publication that this book is offensive and it ought to be uh, suppressed. And then somebody picks up this story in the New York Times Review of Books, and um, articulates its own opinion, and so a scandal begins to slowly bubble up. With Nabokov's help, they publish a section of the book uh, with his afterword, the the, the afterword which becomes on a book entitled Lolita, Mm -hmm. and that gets published in the Anchor Review as a kind of testing ground. So then, so so after that, when um, American publishers realize that there's drama surrounding this novel, they're starting to think that this could be a moneymaker. But I also have found that even Nabokov seemed to be a little back and forth on, you know, he, he definitely said this is not a moral story. He has mentioned aesthetics in regards to this book, but then he also does seem to get frustrated in some of his, at least, you know, personal writings when people seem to miss the point. So, yes, so so what he says on the pedagogical nature of books Mm -hmm. can sometimes be contradictory. Mm -hmm. But if you put them all together, so if you collate them all together and read them together, Mm -hmm. uh, the contradiction uh, disappears because Mm -hmm. what what he's ultimately always saying is that he doesn't approve 
of writings which are exclusively pedagogical, which subordinate everything to the cautionary tale, or stories such as fables, where the moral lesson is so conspicuously obvious. And uh, part of that, so, so, so part of this hostility which he has towards pedagogical, like straight-up pedagogical literature, is personal. He was chased out of Soviet Russia right during Lenin's putsch, Lenin's seizure of power, mm-hmm. and after Nabokov luckily uh, was able to escape, Lenin very quickly clamped down on um, all art and made socialist realist art the, the only acceptable way to write in the Soviet Union. Thank you so much to Dana Draganoyo for her time, and we'll be hearing more from her later in the episode. So, After Lolita, Nabokov finally gets the literary success he's been chasing for over three decades. He makes enough money to retire from teaching and write full-time. He leaves the U.S. and moves into Montreux Palace Hotel in Switzerland. He writes the screenplay to the 1962 Lolita movie directed by Stanley Kubrick. Kind of. That's another episode. And most importantly, Nabokov finally has time to turn out some more hits in the novel space. He releases Pale Fire and Ada, the closest cousin of Lolita in Nabokov's catalog because it deals with another huge cultural taboo incest. In that story, which is a whole other podcast, a brother and sister, Ada and Van, carry on a lifelong ancestral affair without shame. It's very intense. And in 1977, Nabokov dies surrounded by his family. And that's his life. We'll be right back. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Now, when it comes to his personal politics, Nabokov definitely falls under the category of problematic favorite, a term I hate but feels appropriate here. He states more than once that he considers women writers to be inferior and didn't want to work with female translators. Here's a quote on that, referencing Jane Austen. I dislike Jane, and am prejudiced, in fact, against all women writers. They are in another class. Okay, King. Disappointing. Nabokov makes similar comments about working with female translators as well. And it's always interesting to note that Vera Nabokov, his wife, is his closest collaborator throughout his entire career, typing up everything he ever wrote, giving him notes, managing his image, and so on and so on. And he knew how integral her work and support was to his success. When asked by the publication The Listener in 1969, 
could you say how important your wife has been as a collaborator in your work? Nabokov cleverly replies, I could not. And Vera was firm, as we learn in Stacey Schiff's Pulitzer-winning biography of her, in remaining on the sidelines of her husband's career. So it's complicated, but Nabokov definitely comes up short in giving women their due, and I wouldn't really call him a feminist writer. But then on other issues, he's extremely progressive. Some of the other things that stood out to me just as interesting when researching his life were things like this. His devoted study of butterflies, his deep love and partnership with his wife, Vera, a story about when he was a kid, when he had a French tutor and he wrote a mean poem about his how his French male tutor had a big ass and then the tutor was mad at first, but then he thought it was kind of funny and then they were friends. He was also a great dad. There's a lot of great stories about him and his son, Dimitri. I really like how loyal he is to his Russian roots. Um, in addition to all of his fiction, he did this seminal translation of Russia's great poet Alexander Pushkin's magnum opus, which is called Eugene Onegin. He translated it into English and considered that work and Lolita to be his biggest contributions to society. Nabokov wasn't active in politics in a day-to-day sense. Most speculate because of how political careers had torn his family apart and killed his father. But he spoke out against anti-Semitism at every phase of his life and was pretty strongly anti-racist as well. He lectured at Spelman College, an American liberal arts college for black women, and he formed a friendship with the college's president, Florence Reed, that lasted for years. This is further expanded on in Nabokov's short essay, on a book entitled Lolita, included at the end of most editions of the book. Referencing how the subject matter of Lolita put off publishers at first, he says this. The refusal to buy the book was based not on my treatment of the theme, but on the theme itself, for there are at least three themes which are utterly taboo as far as most American publishers are concerned. The two others are a Negro white marriage, which is a complete and glorious success resulting in lots of children and grandchildren, and the total atheist who lives a happy and useful life and dies in his sleep at the age of 106. And finally, what I love about Nabokov is that he was so judgy, at least in like the literary criticism sense. The way that you and me gossip about like people in our lives, Nabokov would just completely go off about authors like really aggressively. And it's kind of funny, like he he likes James Joyce sometimes, and he likes Alexander Pushkin, who is obviously dead, and Shakespeare, who is super dead, and Charles Dickens, super, super dead, but everyone else ever, he would just say they were trash. Like he couldn't relax. I lost count of examples of him just being judgy about other authors. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Nabokov says trash. Boris Pasternak, who is a Russian writer who wrote Dr. Zhivago, was literally afraid of Nabokov. Uh, When they were translating Zhivago into English, someone suggested that Nabokov should be the translator, and Pasternak was like, no, I don't think he would want to. And then Nabokov was asked and was like, no, I absolutely don't want to. That book is trash. Henry James, garbage. Uh, Miguel Cervantes, gag, but he did teach Don Quixote in his class. Jane Austen, also taught her, hated her work, thought she was boring. Virginia Woolf, no thank you. These two examples are arguably also him being sexist. Freud, Kinsey, grow up, and most famously, he hated Dostoevsky, possibly one of the most famous Russian authors of all time. Put him in the trash can, says Nabokov. So he would hate my writing, he would hate your writing, It's all very dramatic, and I love how judgy he was. It's very funny. So that's Nabokov. 
definitely a strange and complicated literary figure, but you'll notice, unlike the Poe's carols and Dante's that Humbert Humbert harps on in Lolita, Nabokov was not a Humbert Humbert type. So how does he write as Humbert, and why? It's also important to note that Lolita was not Nabokov's first attempt to address the theme of pedophilia by a long shot. He outlines Humbert's approach to marrying a woman to get sexual access to her child in the Russian-language novel The Gift in the mid-1930s, then tries his hand at writing the account of a pedophile again in the 1939 Russian-language novella The Enchanter, written in Paris the year before Nabokov moves to the U.S., For a long time, Nabokov thought that the Enchanter had been destroyed entirely, but in the 60s, a copy resurfaced in his papers, and that was later translated from Russian to English by his son, Dmitri, who, by the way, is a bachelor king, piece of work all his own. He was like an opera singer, a legacy keeper. He once got into huge trouble with his dad for judging a Lolita contest in Italy while he was in his 20s, which was exactly as problematic as it sounded. The Enchanter oscillates between first and third person narration and follows a nameless protagonist who Nabokov calls Arthur later in life, who, like Humbert, is attracted to young girls. He runs into a nameless girl in the park, marries her mother to gain access to her. The mother dies soon after. In this story, she is sick and close to death when he marries her instead of running in front of a car like Charlotte. The protagonist then abducts the daughter under the guise of being her guardian, intending to take her on a long road trip. Their first night away, while she's sleeping, he attempts to rape her, but she wakes up, screams, and the protagonist panics and, full of shame, runs into traffic and is killed. It's not his best, and the similarities are mainly in the outline of the story. But this does prove that Lolita wasn't a passing lark thematically. Nabokov had an interest in telling a story with a pedophile protagonist deceiving everyone around them, the devil in plain sight. And that's a pretty heavy theme for a writer that never swore, but there it is. And it's even more interesting that Nabokov claims to have destroyed this story, but 15 whole years later, we find a lot of the ideas in The Enchanter still intact in Lolita. I'm going to kick it over to another expert here, maybe the expert. Brian Boyd wrote the seminal biography of Nabokov, working directly with Vladimir Nabokov's wife, Vera, and his son, Dmitry Nabokov, for over 10 years to get it done. He is the Nabokovian. He first found Lolita at a book stand his parents owned in New Zealand as a young teen and sort of snuck it out as a literary contraband it was then. Then later on, he discovered Nabokov's novel Pale Fire and really fell in love with all of Nabokov's work. And I've got to say, I was afraid the Nabokovians were going to be really intimidating, but they've been nothing but kind and shared a ton of resources with me that were extremely helpful in realizing this series. And they're really excited about new perspectives and active criticism of Nabokov's work. So here's some of Brian Boyd and my discussion about The Enchanter and Lolita. I mean, he did, he... I guess he, he was so passionate about freedom that he liked to break restrictions. That was part of it, I think. Um, and especially about artistic freedom, you know. And well, I did a review of the Enchanter, which was probably the harshest that's appeared anywhere. It was it uh, <laughs> appeared with a title that I suggested, Prehash. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's a terrible little story, really. Uh, Dmitry Nabokov's translation does it much of a service. Uh, mm. It would have been much better if, if it had been translated while Nabokov was alive and could revise Dmitry's translation. But sure. it isn't that very clogged, late Nabokov Russian prose style. So there, there was that and, and the fact that 
really nobody was realized in the character in the characterization the setting wasn't realized very well um it's also different from lolita which is so uh, funny although my students find that hard to a lot of, a lot of them have found that hard, increasingly hard to to see mm-hmm. um beautifully detailed about america and uh, and it's just got so many strands going in it with the relationship between humbert and charlotte and and uh humbert and cruelty and lolita and cruelty and so on the book of like posing challenges for his readers and um, and here one of the great challenges is to read it independently of, of Humbert to mm-hmm. see Lolita and so many people fail that test um, I don't know if he kind of figured out what high, what a high percentage of readers would fail it but you take those early readers like Lionel Trilling and Robertson Davies mm-hmm. and the things they say about you know Trilling saying it's it's a book about love, and Davies saying uh, he he thinks it's a seduction of a a, a man by a, a corrupt girl, and you know, um, it's, it's just staggering that that these highly literate, highly educated, uh, h- highly imaginative readers could read it so badly. I mean, it does. I think Nabokov did show um, a lot of the the kind of predatory mm-hmm. assumptions in the male psyche at the time. Absolutely. I and I and I found it really interesting and again just with like there's right off the bat kind of this bizarre misinterpretation that is not the author's fault. Well, I used to tell my students, you know, paint a picture of, of Nabokov and, and then contrast him with Humbert. So you know, mm. uh, say that uh, yeah. Um there's this famous rugby player who's uh, was six foot five, and I, I said that uh, Dmitry Nabokov was was six five. He was as tall as, as Jonah Lomu. Um, Dmitry is not Lolita, and Nabokov was not Humbert. And no, uh, so just just emphasizing that, and 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 inviting them to stressing how much Nabokov is on Lolita's side, and trying to read the novel. Mm-hmm. from that angle yeah the the, the, the challenge of, of of not being seduced by humbert's rhetoric thank you so much to brian and we're going to be talking to him a lot throughout the series so lolita is of course far more nuanced than the enchanter and that's great news we talked a little bit analytically about the book in the last episode but i have a few more things that i'd like to hit on here Now, if you're an Abokov fan that loves his use of language, we could be here all day. So I'm going to try to stay focused thematically. But I will mention a few uses of language that are especially fun to me. Uh, Protagonist Humbert Humbert writes Lolita under observation in a sanatorium and later in a jail cell, which Nabokov would explain is the animal drawing its own cage. Stylistically, Lolita is kind of a hall of mirrors language-wise. We see the same phrases pop up over and over while Humbert plays with language to lure the readers in. There's a great essay on this in the collection The Magician's Doubts by Michael Wood. The hotel where Humbert first rapes Dolores is called The Enchanted Hunters. Later on, Dolores is in a Claire Quilty play. That's the writer that eventually abducts her out of Humbert's abduction. And the play is called The Hunted Enchanters. And when Dolores sees Humbert again, pregnant and poor at 17, she lives on Hunter Road. There's a character who co-writes Quilty's plays with him named Vivian Darkbloom. Mix those letters around and yes, it's an anagram for Vladimir Nabokov. There's all of the Poe references and Nabokov manages to insert some of his opinions on pop psychologists like 
Kinsey and Freud through Humbert's telling psychiatrists at the sanatoriums he stays at some of the popular theories of his day instead of what he was actually going through, making the psychologist feel accomplished and Humbert feel like he's deceived them. And let's hit on that for a moment. Why did Nabokov hate Freud so much? We're going to really unpack this in a future episode, but I wanted to quickly share this insight from Lucia Williams, who we'll be talking with throughout this show. She's a former professor of psychology at the Universidad Federal de Sao Carlos in Brazil, where she coordinated La Prev, the Laboratory of Violence Analysis and Protection. The paper of hers I'm citing here is called Reading Lolita to Understand Child Sexual Abuse, and the reasoning is this, quote, Nabokov was intuitively right, even in his antipathy for Sigmund Freud, who could have advanced knowledge on the impact of child sexual abuse in human development and did not. Freud came back from Paris shocked with the maltreated children he saw examined by child abuse pioneer Ambrosia Tardieu, a French pathologist and expert in forensic medicine. In his Assault on Truth, Jeffrey M. Masson describes how Freud was forced by Viennese society to abandon his proposed seduction theory, in which hysteria occurred as a result of premature sexual experiences, as no one could believe that so many respectable gentlemen could indeed sexually abuse their own daughters. As a result, Freud abandoned his theory and started defending that the patient's report was a mere fabrication based on underlying repressed sexual urges." Unquote. There's a ton more, but something Nabokov struggled with after Lolita became popular was critics and readers conflating Humbert's attitudes with his own. Now, while I personally don't hate all of the fictional John Ray Jr.'s forward warning the reader that Humbert is a pedophile who's not to be trusted, Nabokov thought that John Ray Jr. was a little bit over the top in his moralizing, something I would guess he would feel about a lot of culture today. I politely disagree. But speaking to this point, in conversation with Russian-Jewish-American author Herbert Gold, the following exchange. Gold says that his, quote, sense of the immorality of the relationship between Humbert Humbert and Lolita is very strong, unquote. Nabokov replies, No, it is not my sense of immorality of the Humbert Humbert-Lolita relationship that is strong. It is Humbert's sense. He cares. I do not. Herbert says later on that some might find Humbert to be, quote, touching, to which Nabokov says this. I would put it differently. Humbert Humbert is a vain and cruel wretch who manages to appear touching. That epithet, in its true, tear-iridized sense, can only apply to my poor little girl. And let's talk about that girl, Dolores, the book Dolores, because Humbert's descriptions of her very often obscure the resilient young girl who never should have been put in these circumstances to begin with. Dolores, in being declared Lolita by Humbert, suffers the fate that many of Nabokov's female characters do. She's fixated on, misunderstood, and lusted after by a male protagonist that doesn't actually care who she is or how she feels. And there's a lot of reasons why readers often conflate the actions and opinions of character with their authors. And again, we could talk about death of the author theory all day, but I have an idea of why this might happen to Nabokov specifically. And that is because virtually all of Nabokov's protagonists and narrators are men, with the exception of one short story. Many of them are Russian emigres or new to a country, like Nabokov was in Germany and then in America, and they're often also academics, like Professor Nabokov. Like any writer, Nabokov pulled from what he knew in order to write, and like any good writer, his characters are not him. It's interesting reading interviews with him from this time because it often seems like people come into a discussion with the assumption that writing about Humbert 
is automatically condoning it. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com. When asked why he named his criminal protagonist Humbert Humbert, Nabokov told Playboy in 1964 that it's, quote, Very nasty, very suggestive. It is a hateful name for a hateful person. But let's get back to Nabokov's women, also the name of an incredible essay collection recommended to me by Dana. Here's a little bit more of our discussion. There is, like you're saying, a lot of focus in his work on children suffering and then also women suffering. Even the the um, the references to you know his feelings on anti-Semitism. You know, it's like all the people that Humbert doesn't want us to like um, make an anti-Semitic comment at some point. So you mentioned that yes, the misogyny. He was very progressive on race um, yeah. for a man his of his time, like exceptionally so. And um, in part, he inherited that from his father. Uh, so Nabokov himself comes from a very kind of Caucasian, aristocratic, uh, upper middle class um, background. So I, I think that would be true, that, that women typically suffer in his fiction, um, and for a vast array of reasons. So um, yes, many commit suicide. Uh, some are killed in freak accidents caused by men. So the fact that Charlotte dies in a car accident, there's no reason why she should have died in that car accident had um, had Humbert, Humbert not placed all those other things which led to that outcome. So um, he, he doesn't um, he doesn't acknowledge his uh, contribution to her grisly fate, but it's there, right? It's uh, all, all of those variables he put there. Um, now, why why is there this? Why is there kind of proliferation of uh, angelic women who perish and suffer in Nabokov? and kind of shallow viragos who are opportunists and destroy men, because there are many of those as well. Um, well, it's, it's, I would argue, and this is my argument, uh, but it's not in print yet, that, um, that, that Nabokov was born and raised in a kind of culture of honor and courtesy that is a legacy of 
of medievalism. The, the, the medieval literature which he studied at Cambridge, his tripos at Cambridge was in the Romance languages, so uh, the literature of France in the Middle Ages. Um, and Nabokov grew up in an aristocratic family in Russia where um, honor and gender ethics were very important. Men did certain things, women did certain other things. If a woman's honor was impugned, a man was expected to rise to her defense. His father almost fought in a duel. Nabokov himself almost fought in a couple of duels. Uh, he, th there's an anecdote, for instance, that, that Brian Boyd tells. When Nabokov was very young, living in Berlin, um, a violinist of Romanian extraction was well known to be a wife abuser. And then his wife died and she was full of bruises. And the suspicion was that uh, either he killed her or that she committed suicide because she couldn't stand the abuse anymore. So Nabokov goes to the club where the violinist is still playing and he beats him up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this act of vigilante justice, right? Sure, sure. But um, more broadly, I think your question um, can be answered very productively because Nabokov, like many uh, Russian writers, uh, was fascinated with, with childhood, but not, not in a sexual way, but mm -hmm. as a kind of test case for innocence and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So in Nabokov's own work, uh, children um, figure very frequently in his fiction mm -hmm. and uh, most frequently as victims. So the, the, the figure of the suffering child mm -hmm. haunts Nabokov's imagination from the, well, I, I, I would say from the moment that uh, Nazism begins and, 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 and his mind is haunted by children being burned in gas ovens. And so from then on till the end of Ada, so that's like the entirety of his greatest career. The child becomes iconic in his imagination. Brian Boyd also points out the narrative significance that children have within Nabokov's work. Well, I think, you know, really it was because for him, the innocence of childhood was so important. Um, I, I think he was grossed out almost by, by the way childhood was sexualized too early in America. And he mm -hmm. felt uneasy about uh, Dimitri being off at, at summer camps and, and so on. Um, the corruption of young young children. I, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on the female characters, the doomed women. There are, there are a lot of doomed men in the book. <laughs> I mean, you, you, think, you think of uh, the illusion, defense, and the suicide that, that that whole book leads to so painfully, inexorably. Uh, or or uh, Fyodor's father and the gift who, you know, uh, presumably has been killed or, or uh, killed somewhere in Central Asia or. Uh, Martin in Glory, who presumably has been killed with trying to cross the border into Russia, or David, the, the boy who was tortured uh, in, in that ghastly way in, in Ben Sinister, and then his father who goes mad and is, runs towards people in the shot. You know, uh, and Nabokov knew he had his, his the best friend of his childhood, his cousin Yuri, uh, sh shot with his head ripped off by machine guns uh, in in 1918, and then his his father's murder in 1922. Yeah. Uh, you know, Edmund White complains that 
that there's too much violent death in, in Nabokov. But you know, Nabokov had lived it. And of course, there's shade gets shot in, in power fire and there's uh, a huge person gets burnt in, in transparent things. So, okay, there are doomed women, but there are doomed people of, of every kind. Thank you so much again to Brian Boyd and to Dana Dragonoyu for all of that wonderful insight. So as many have noted in the past, Dolores is not completely absent in the text of Lolita, but she is absolutely sidelined by Humbert in order to better serve his own narrative. There is far more said by Humbert about what he fixates and projects onto her, his physical desire, extremely specific details about her appearance, his paranoia and his blame when she's physically absent, than about Dolores herself. That is to say, we hear a lot about Lolita, who is a fantasy, not Dolores, who is very real and enduring a personal tragedy. Where we do find Dolores is in some of her dialogue. She says stuff like, I must go now, kiddo. Butte, swank, swell, peachy, sap, stinker, jerk, super luscious, goon, drip, you dull bulb. A lot of stuff. As well as descriptions of what she likes. However, when Humbert describes Dolores's interest to us, it's mostly just to call them annoying. A combination of naivete and deception, of charm and vulgarity, of blue sulks and rosy mirth, Lolita, when she chose, could be a most exasperating brat. I was not really quite prepared for her fits of disorganized boredom, intense and vehement gripping, her sprawling, droopy, dopey-eyed style, and what is called goofing off, a kind of diffused clowning which she thought was tough in a boyish hoodlum way. Mentally, I found her to be a disgustingly conventional way. What Humbert is so snobbishly describing here is a regular kid. I mean, if you needed any more evidence that this isn't a love story, he does not like the parts of Dolores that he cannot sexualize or control. And there are a few references to the extremely deep despair that Dolores, who again is just a kid, is feeling about her situation. There's references to the nights she spends crying, a few moments with her friends, and this really devastating scene that Humbert reflects on at the end of the book when Dolores sees her friend Avis have an innocuous, affectionate interaction with her dad while Dolores is holding a kitchen knife. Suddenly, as Avis clung to her father's neck and ear while, with a casual arm, the man enveloped his lumpy and large offspring, I saw Lolita's smile lose all its light and become a frozen little shadow of itself. And the fruit knife slipped off the table and struck her with a silver handle, a freak blow on the ankle. And while you do need to look for these passages, there's so much here. There's a reminder of how unhappy Dolores is that she's also experiencing grief from losing her parents, her inability to communicate with the people in her life about this despair out of fear and trauma. There's a lot, and the Nabokovs themselves grew protective of Lolita. I already showed you this quote from Vera last episode, but here it is in a bit longer form. I wish someone would notice the tender description of the child's helplessness, her pathetic dependence on the monstrous HH, and her heart-rending courage all along, culminating in that squalid but essentially pure and healthy marriage and her dog. They all miss the fact that the horrid little brat Lolita is essentially very good indeed, or she would not have straightened out after being crushed so terribly and found a decent life with poor Dick more to her liking than the other kind. I also want to take another opportunity here to give Charlotte Hayes her due. While she is portrayed as flighty, selfish, and cruel to her daughter, a degree of which definitely appears true, 
try and look through Humbert's language here. Charlotte is a single parent at a time where this was not made easy in the late 1940s. She's still mourning her husband, as well as something that's only mentioned once, the death of a two-year-old boy who had been Dolores's baby brother. And Dolores likely had unresolved issues around a trauma like this as well. So while Charlotte does seem unkind and distant to her daughter, relatable, even considering all that, there's a context to this all its own. And so whether you like her or not, she is far more complicated and going through a lot more than Humbert is comfortable with or interested in acknowledging. And Nabokov himself found for the first time in his career, a character he had written was being taken out of his authorial control. He says the following to the writer Graham Greene in 1956, before Lolita had even been published in the United States. My poor Lolita is having a rough time, Nabokov wrote to Greene. The pity is that if I had made her a boy or a cow or a bicycle, Philistines might never have flinched. Or there's this exchange from the Paris Review. Humbert was fond of little girls, not simply young girls. Nymphettes are girl children, not starlets and sex kittens. Lolita was 12, not 18, when Humbert met her. You may remember that by the time she is 14, he refers to her as his aging mistress. And it is understandable that the press and people in Nabokov's circle had a difficult time understanding how a writer, who was, by all accounts, nothing like Humbert in his criminality, plugged himself into such a sick protagonist's mind. And in fact, there were even parents of students at Cornell who were nervous to let their kids take classes from Nabokov. What we know about Nabokov's ability to create Humbert comes down to his research. He looked at a number of case studies of American pedophiles, some of which we'll discuss in a future episode, and also later said that he had listened to how girls spoke to each other on buses and in public parks, and he wrote a character. Early into Lolita's publication history, Nabokov also attempted to control what appeared on the cover of his book, saying this, I want pure colors, melting clouds, accurately drawn details, a sunburst above a receding road with the light reflected in furrows and ruts after rain, and no girls. If you've ever seen a cover of Lolita, you will know that this wish was definitely not respected, and that there's been a wide variety of we will we'll get to that in a future episode. Even later in his career, Nabokov would go on to take public issue with how the dictionary defined the word nymphet, a word that he invented, whose definition he was still ultimately unable to control. Lolita had grown too big. And so eventually, as time went on, Nabokov kind of stopped trying and moved on to write other work. Lolita had secured for him the life he had always wanted. He could write full-time. He was acclaimed as a great American writer. So when Stanley Kubrick and James Harris bought the rights to the movie in 1958 and invited Nabokov to write the screenplay, after a while, he said yes. And it's about here that we're going to say goodbye to Dolores for now. As far as I'm concerned, she exists solely in the book. What we find in what global culture takes away from this book, at least in the general sense, is just Lolita, the fantasy that a pedophile is trying to sell us, not the girl that is suffering behind it. I really love Dolores, justice for Dolores, and, and I'm very attached to her. She is a kid that is able to find these moments of joy for herself during an inhuman experience. And even inside of this horrifying account by a pedophile with a vested interest in winning your sympathy, Dolores still shines through in these moments. 
Nabokov has his flaws, and we should not ignore them. But close readers of the book and the scholars who have been discussing, guarding, and cataloging the entirety of Nabokov's work over the years, the Nabokovians, I love to say that, have not found a shred of pro-pedophilia within the text itself. There really is no good faith interpretation of the work that will say so, although there's plenty of bad faith interpreters out there. The discussion academically has actually begun to actively encourage a feminist reading and teaching of the text. Dana Draganoyo with the mic drop here. The novel, um, and even Humbert Humbert, does let through the cracks uh, knowledge about her actions and activities, which um, really tell us beyond any reasonable doubt that she was trying to make an escape from him. Mm-hmm. So we're told that she's squirreling money away that he gives her for the various sexual acts that he imposes upon her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she squirrels away money not to buy confectionery, but to run away. She's mm-hmm. trying to get away from him. And then he takes away that money. Like the, 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 the depth of his villainies, kind of. <laughs> uh, he makes promises which he, uh, he, which he breaks the moment that uh, she has, uh, you know, had, had, had sex with him. Yeah. So he makes promises that he retracts. Um, and the minute that she can get away from him, she leaves him. So, so we see, a, a, a we know, because he admits it, that she's crying every night. Yeah. Um, he tells us that he had trained himself to ignore her sobs in the night, every night. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he admits that she only gets reconciled to him only because she had nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. So um, n- there's not a single moment in the novel which suggests to us that Lolita was actually um, enjoying her life with him. Mm-hmm. It, it was totally... A, 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 a condition of imprisonment. Um, we do. We don't even have the the Stockholm syndrome. She she doesn't even su- suffer from the Stockholm syndrome, right? She never. Uh, she, she never, never warms to up there. to him. Yeah, she never wants to yeah. be there. It's she yeah. she never wants to be there. Yeah. And and the irony of ironies, the kind of tragic irony that that she makes her escape with somebody who's even worse than Humbert. So how to teach Lolita? uh, What can it teach us? A a debate that hasn't been put to rest, and it uh, relates to um, the question of how uh, Lolita is suppressed in in the novel mm-hmm. uh, is is an is is a debate that is now of several decades standing, and it began with a number of feminist scholars who noticed that there is a temporal discrepancy in Humbert's account. There's three days missing, oh. um, three days missing in the chronology that he gives us, and if those three days that are missing is not simply a typo, mm-hmm. but Nabokov intentionally put it there. That means that Humbert never receives a letter from Dolly, never goes to Colmont to meet her in her pregnant state, and never marries Quilty, and there was never any Quilty to begin with. So that uh, floats the possibility that Dolly got away from him much earlier. We don't know really what happens to her, even if she's dead. She might even be alive and well. And um, 
this this argument has its uh, sympathizers and its detractors. Uh, Brian Boyd has showed that it's almost certainly a typo. Nabokov was very careless with his dates. Um, but those who are in favor of this theory will point out that when when the book was translated into Russian, uh, Nabokov uh, does not. Uh, Nabokov does not correct the error, but in fact underscores it, leaves the error in place, and draws attention to it. So if it's intentional, if it's intentional, the destiny of Dolly could be something very different than the tragic destiny that Humbert inscribes in the book. So if you are an adult still out here saying this is a love story, let me be perfectly clear how I feel about it. You missed the fucking point. But hey, you are certainly not alone there. So, in the early 1960s, the Nabokovs come back to the U.S. from Switzerland so that Vladimir can write the screenplay for Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. What was about to happen was, well, yeah, next week on Lolita Podcast. This has been a production of iHeartRadio. My name's Jamie Loftus. I write and host the show. My producers are the wonderful Sophie Lichterman, Miles Gray, Beth Ann Makuliso, and Jack O'Brien. My editor is the amazing Isaac Taylor. Additional research and transcription work from Ben Loftus. Music is by Zoe Blade. And our theme is from Brad Dickert. Thank you so much to my guest voices on this episode, as well Aziz Vora as Humbert Humbert, Robert Evans as Vladimir Nabokov, Anna Hosnier, Shireen Lani Yunus, Grace Thomas, and Miles Gray. We'll see you next week. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.